yesterday we talked about a Jesus that, um, that looks like a cross and, uh, and a Jesus that's worth our lives. And, um, and the question that we want to explore today is what does our life look like when we do that? Uh, as we follow a Jesus that I got done talking about yesterday, uh, our lives, like the, literally the, the shadow of our lives should look like the cross and it should be changing stuff. Like broken things in the world should be made right, right? And yes, that includes human souls, but that also includes broken relationships and and unjust systems and and international conflict. It should involve the way that we're thinking about creation and the care of it and so on and so forth. So how do we, when we follow this Jesus, what do do our our lives look like? Um, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, Her name's Maya. Maya is, uh, is one of my closest friends, and she's the executive, executive director of Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation. Uh, Maya and I get to do all sorts of unique things together, and, uh, and some of you might be going, Ugh, Lady Gaga! Uh, she's, uh, her real name's Stephanie, and she's one of the most remarkable, compassionate, thoughtful, justice-oriented people I think I've ever met. And, uh, and so uh, Maya gets to, uh, gets to be the executive director of her foundation, which means that Maya spends about $250 million a year teaching people how to be kind. And, uh, and uh, what's amazing to me is that um, the world, like the United Nations, is not looking to the church to help grow kindness. They're looking to Lady Gaga and the Born This Way Foundation. I was in D.C. not too long ago, and uh, I was there to give a uh, kind of a talk or an analysis to a whole group of, uh, of evangelical leaders who are trying to sort out, like, how do we show up in the world right now? Because the world feels really divided. And so they invited a couple of us in to give an analysis and to share some thoughts about what seems broken and what the future could look like for us. And before I had that conversation, I was sitting down with Maya and some of her friends, and they said, hey, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm going to sit in a room filled with evangelical leaders. And these people are not people of faith, necessarily. And so when I said I'm going to sit in a room with evangelical leaders and and offer an analysis, they all went like this, what are you going to say? And before I could say anything, Maya says, because I want you to tell them this. I want you to tell them that we think that they're the most dangerous people on the planet. We think that they're the ones with the fingers on the triggers of the world's guns. I want you to tell them that we don't think that they are the hope of the world, and we don't even think that they're irrelevant anymore. We think they're a liability. They're the problem. And we, and we were sitting with some high-power people, we are committed to working around you. And I said, well, let me gauge the rapport in the room tomorrow, and if it feels like I can offer that input, I certainly will. And, uh, but as I walked out of the room, I realized, wow, that's an important analysis. Here's the thing that she said. She texted this to me uh, later. She said, Jer, um, your people use the cross as an excuse for coercion, manipulation, power grabbing, and violence. Your cross, get this, your cross is not good news to the watching world. That's an analysis. You see, oftentimes we can sit inside of our own little fishbowl and think that we have power and influence and that we're doing good things in the world, but when you crawl out of that fishbowl and you start asking better questions of people who are looking on, you start to get a feel for what might be real in the world. Friends, when the watching world is looking at us, they're not seeing a cross-shaped community of people. They're seeing a cross-wielding community of people. Keeping in mind, a cross is an execution device, right? It's a tool of violence. That is the watching world's experience of us right now. And so I want to have a little conversation about the cross. 
Is it possible that the, uh, that the cross is, uh, is a demonstration of God's love rather than God's violence, God's wrath? Is it possible that the cross is about something far bigger than personal salvation and the restoration of the human soul? Is it possible that the cross is the clearest revelation of who God is, whom God is for, and what God is about? So go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I think it's like the, it's like the nugget of what this whole thing is all about. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing a, a letter to people that he loves, people who are learning how to live a cross-shaped way of life for the good of their city, ultimately for the complete upending of the Roman Empire so that the kingdom of God can come in and heaven and earth can be woven back together. He's instructing them on how it is that we should live. And of course, as always, he starts with the cross. Why? Because the cross is the thematic center of our story. As Jesus people, it's where we start. And so he's reflecting on the cross, and in verses 18, or excuse me, 19 and 20, he says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that Paul, Paul understands that when you, when you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. Do you want to know what God thinks about? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks of the other, the marginalized, the power, powerless? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks about you? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God is concerned about issues of injustice in the world? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the full representation of what God is like. Not like just another one to add to a long list from Genesis all the way through. No, he is the penultimate revelation of what God is like. In flesh and blood, you want to know how God thinks, how God loves, how God behaves, how God speaks, how God draws near. Do you want to know what God thinks about you? Look at Jesus. So this is Paul's understanding. So he says, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Paul, when he reflects on the cross, recognizes that the cross was not a tool of violence. It was a tool of restoration. That in the cross, in the blood of Jesus, God waged a decisive peace and it worked and it's caused and is causing the restoration of all things from paul's perspective the cross was absolutely a declaration of god's love it's a declaration of god's you are cherished you are beloved you are my cherished beloved and so is your enemy so is your enemy so it's a declaration but it's also an invitation Right? It doesn't just like stop at the cross and like, well, thanks God for doing that. No, the cross is actually an invitation. You and I, go and live this kind of life. Go and live a cross-shaped kind of life. Go and live a life that is creative and nonviolent and sacrificial, not for my benefit, but for the sake of the world. It's a declaration. It's an invitation. And it is a clear, clear revelation of what God is all about. God is 100% committed to the restoration of of all things. And friends, that's good news. That's good news. Now, if God waged a decisive peace in Jesus and it worked, that makes God a peacemaker. Peacemaker? Peacemakers are crazy liberals. They're progressives. They're hippies. Peacemaking is the stuff of unicorns and Volkswagen buses. It's idealistic. It's esoteric. It doesn't matter in real life. It doesn't actually shape or change anything. As a matter of fact, the only peacemakers that change anything in this world are the bombs that are called peacemakers, right? 
God is a peacemaker? What's that all about? One of my favorite imageries uh, when, when I'm talking about peace and shalom and restoration is this ancient imagery. It's a, it's a Japanese pottery style called kintsugi. And in kintsugi pottery, a, a vessel is broken like you see here in this picture. And a kintsugi artist, rather than bringing all the pieces back together and healing it so well that you don't see the scars anymore, here's what a kintsugi artist does. Puts the pieces back together and then heals the fissures in gold. So the image of peace that God actually waged in Jesus is not just simply the putting back together of all that was shattered once upon a time. No, this vessel, it's stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. And in this imagery, the scars are not so much a reminder of the brokenness as much as a reminder of the restoration. God is a kintsugi artist. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1. God is the great peacemaker. But when did God become a peacemaker, right? When did that happen? Did that just happen at the cross? No. If you remember, God started to speak existence into being. This is how the Genesis story goes in Genesis 1. Because God loved and because God is peace, the most loving thing God can do is expand the volume of creation to share God's self with. That's why God created. God had no need. There was no void. God wanted to. So he began to speak existence into being. The pinnacle of his created order is humanity. And what we have in the first two chapters of our story is the community of God, the community of humanity, and creation dancing to the rhythm of God's heartbeat. It was the embodiment of shalom. It was as it was supposed to be for two chapters. And then what happened? We reached for the fruit of power. And when we did that, all of Shalom was shattered. Every relationship, this relationship, the relationship with myself, the relationship with you, the relationship between us and creation, all of it shattered. And in that moment, God, whose name is peace, became the great peacemaker. Isn't that good news? In that moment, God said, I am 100% committed to the restoration of all things. Now, what did that look like? What did God as peacemaker look like? Well, if you think about that story as it continues in the garden, when we shattered shalom, a vengeful, angry, violent, militaristic God would have ended the story, right? Put the pencil down and walk away. That's not what happens. In Genesis chapter 3, we discover a God who saw our humanity, saw our dignity, saw his image etched into us, saw our brokenness, saw the pain, saw the divisions. He saw it all, and what God saw became the most important thing in the world to him. See, grace doesn't enter the story at the cross. Grace entered the story when we reached for the fruit of power. Grace is the thing that fueled God to actually see us in our brokenness, and that's the moment we actually became enemy territory. What did God do then? Did he stay distant and aloof, Zeus-like in his throne and look down and be like, well, good luck, figure this out? No. Immediately, God immerses into the cool of the garden. So in the very story, the initial stories of this whole thing, we discover a God who sees us 
even in our pain, even in our sin, even in our pride, sees us and then doesn't stay distant, but actually immerses into the radical center of it. And how did God enter into that, that story, by the way? Did God do so with tools of punishment and destruction? Mercy, compassion, and my favorite, a question. God shows up immerses into the radical center and gets curious. He says, where are you? Where'd you go? Man, does that restore some of our picture of this vindictive, angry God who demands your moral perfection? No, God is one who draws near you with compassion and mercy, 100% committed to your restoration, and God does so with compassion and mercy and curiosity. So we have a God who sees, a God who immerses. And then when God was there, he realized, wow, these people are sewing fig leaves together. They're covering up their shame. Like, what's that all about? And so what does God do? He covers their shame. But how did God do that? Skins. How did he get skins? Something had to die. So right away in the very beginning, we see a God who recognizes that contending is going to be costly. It's going to cost blood. That blood will need to be shed in order for your shame to be covered. So a God who sees, a God who immerses, a God who contends at the cost of bloodshed. Then we have a God who begins to talk about restoration. There's a day coming when I'm going to restore all of shalom. Everything that was shattered when you reached for the fruit of power. And guys, this story of divine peacemaking, this rhythm, this pattern of a God who sees, immerses, contends, and promises restoration, it happens all the way through the story. Think about them in the chains in Egypt. The, the people are crying out, and God goes, I see you. I hear you. I see you in your pain. I see you in your chains. And now I'm coming in there. I'm coming down, right? And I'm going to invite Moses to join me in the work of restoration. I'm going to invite Moses to join me in the work of liberation, right? And so we have a God who sees, a God who immerses, a God who contends, and then says, you know what? There's a day coming when you're going to be restored from something far bigger than the chains of Egypt. You're going to be restored from a chains that are far more insidious that have warped your soul. That day's coming. Throughout this immigrant journey, God continues to see, immerse, and contain and remind them that there's a bigger restoration coming. In exile, they're in chains again, crying out, how did we get here? Why are we here? And what does God say through the prophets? I see you. And I'm about to immerse in a way unlike I ever have before. And when I'm there, I'm going to contend for you at the, at the cost of my life. My blood's going to be shed. And that bloodshed will bring about the restoration of all things. Then there's 400 years of silence. God goes quiet. Then shows up to this impoverished little uh, couple in, in the northern Galilee, and he says, ah, I see you. And now I have immersed in the embryonic form of a human baby. And I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to contend with you, and I'm going to teach you what God thinks about you, and I'm going to show you what it means to contend, and ultimately, I will contend for your restoration, not through military overthrow, but through selfless sacrifice, and when I do, that will bring about the restoration that you, uh, that was needed the moment you reached for fruit, the fruit of power in the garden. The cross is a tool of restoration. So restoration, friends, is the mission of God. So the question is, if God waged a decisive peace and it worked, then why do we live in a world that's so divided? Why are there 51 armed conflicts in the world? Why are our streets divided by race and the abuse of power? 
Why are there immigrants living in fear in our neighborhoods? Why are we living in homes and dorm rooms and and, and office spaces where there are broken relationships with our families and friends? If God waged such a decisive peace, why is it not real? Let me offer two thoughts. Number one, the cross freed us from the power of sin, but not the presence of it. We keep on reaching for the fruit of power, and every time we do it, we shatter shalom. We create more divide between us. Number two, if restoration is the mission of God, that makes peacemaking the vocation of God's people. Our mission is not to live morally, intellectually, socially satisfied. Our job is not to convince people of the superiority of our God with our thinking. Our job is to actually live a cross-shaped way of life together with other people that causes restoration to spring to life such that friends like Maya look and go, oh, wow, you embody a cross, and that's changing things. If restoration is the mission of God, then peacemaking is is the vocation of God's people. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. He talks about how we, because we are the beloved reconciled, have been given the the ministry, the mission of reconciliation. Restoration is our purpose, and it's not for the professional humanitarians and for the pastors and the missionaries. It's for we who have been sent. So to say yes to Jesus is to say yes to a cross-shaped way of life that causes broken things to be fixed, which means that peacemaking is not an add-on to our faith. It's central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, how? How do we join God in mending the divides in our world? That's the question we're seeking to answer in this book, Mending the Divides, that launches today. It launches today. This is a story of a restorative, expansive God who is radically pro-human, who cannot hold himself back from loving and restoring. This is a story about a God who, who, for whatever reason, chooses to invite us in joining him in ushering in the new world that he's making. Friends, we have a resurrected Jesus who says, behold, I am making all things new. Not a Jesus who said, I made all things new or I will make all things new. The resurrected Jesus says, I am making all things new. How is Jesus doing that? Politicians. No. Jesus is making all things new with his physical presence and power here on the planet. That's you and me. That's you and me. What does this look like? Looks like my friend Moira. Moira is a Palestinian Muslim woman. She, uh, she lost her husband in the Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She began a friendship with a, uh, an Israeli Jew named Ben, who is a, a grandfather figure who lost his daughter to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Two enemies believe in the power of restoration so much that they've actually adopted one another. They've become family and now go in and out of schools throughout Israel and Palestine telling their stories and raising up the value of reconciliation over revenge. These are not professional humanitarians. These are people with a story. They're using their tools to actually bring about God's restoration in the world. This is my friend Ben. You met him yesterday. Restoration looks like uh, after the the non-indictment in the Freddie Gray case, Thousands of people marched through the streets of Oakland. People were angry, and rightly so. 
They got to a point where uh, there, were, there were thousands of us marching through the streets of Oakland and the police decided that they were going to stop the march right there and that made the protesters really, really angry. So restoration in this kind of space looked like Ben and I literally walking the line between police and angry protesters hoping to de-escalate it. And then what began to happen is conversation, understanding. The batons and the shields came down and we begin to actually talk to one another. Not all things restored, but it's the seeds, the mustard seeds of restoration. It looks like my friends Bree and Adam, who live in Des Moines, Iowa, they moved into a neighborhood and realized how under-resourced it was. There was no front porch space. There was no space for people to convene and get to know each other and address the things that are broken in their space. And so they renovated their home. They used their own resources and renovated their home so they could have an open space that could become a front porch space in their neighborhood. And they host dialogues and they host laments and they host evenings and parties and everything in this room. And now they're waking up to the fact that gentrification is beginning to sweep their place and so how do we get in the way of that alongside our neighbors they're beginning to recognize that there there are kids trapped in systems without families in Des Moines what are we going to do about that right that's restoration is beginning to spring up not because they're sitting around trafficking ideas and being nice but because there's broken things in their neighborhood and they follow Jesus Friends, we get to join God in mending the divides. We get to join God in ushering in the new world he's making. And yes, that involves the restoration of the human soul. Absolutely. And it also looks like brothers and sisters no longer killing their brothers and sisters. It looks like women and children no longer being exploited for the pleasures of men. It looks like no human beings being owned by the powerful. The world that God is making and that we get to be a part of ushering in is a world where senseless gun violence no longer kills kids in our streets. It's a world where immigrants no longer hide in fear in our neighborhoods. It's a world where human beings are no longer trapped in cages, where addiction no longer has power, where hunger and thirst no longer plague humanity. The world that God is making and that we get to be a part of ushering in is a world where capitalism no longer trumps compassion. It's a world where consumption no longer trumps generosity. And it's a world where my flourishing no longer trumps yours. This is the new world that God is making, and we get to be a part of ushering it in if we want to. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. He's the one that used the word. So apparently it's not for kooky liberals. It's for people who claim to follow Jesus. Blessed are the women and men who actively spend their lives joining God in mending the divides, for they, he says, will be called children of God. 